Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in on our sermon series through the Book of Romans. Throughout history, this has been regarded as the greatest letter ever written. It has been used by God to change people's lives for centuries, and we have prayed that God would use it to change your life as well. In a world full of bad news, Romans is about good news, and we hope God uses this sermon to help you believe and enjoy the good news of the gospel. Thanks for listening. The scripture for today is Romans 3, 21 through 31. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Thank you, Scott and Bridget. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Y'all ready? Guess where we're turning? Romans chapter 3. If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to get there. If you're brand new with us, we are walking through uh, the book of Romans, which if you were to take me and to put me on a desert island by myself for the rest of my life and tell me I could only take one book of the Bible with me, this would probably be it. As uh, we've said many times, uh, most people have said, if you're a student of the Bible, that this is the most uh, condensed version of the gospel. Paul does such an incredible job unpacking who God is and uh, who we are and who we who wants us to be and what he has done to provide a way in the gospel for us to be changed. And if you've been with us uh, for the last few weeks in Romans, you know that Paul has gone uh, to a lot of depth and, uh, and energy to uh, in the first couple chapters to show us that there's some bad news before he gets into the good news. Uh, he has to get us to a place where we realize that we need to be saved and rescued before he unpacks the, the rescuer and the Savior. And so today you will be so happy to know that this is a big shift. Uh, this is where he shifts from the bad news to unpacking really the depths of the good news. And he does it with really just one word. Uh, and we begin this uh, portion of verse 21. He says, but. And that word but is an unbelievably powerful word. Uh, in the English language, it can take a sentence or an idea that seems to be going one way and just on a dime can flip it and make it go the other way. The word but can transition really bad news into really good news. Uh, it can resurrect 
resurrect this idea of hope where there seems to be none. Yesterday was uh, Hannah's birthday, uh, my wife, who's the greatest person on the planet. And uh, the day began with some bad news, telling the kids, hey, we don't need any more sugar. We don't need any more, more, more carbohydrates. You people have enough energy as it is. So they were thinking, oh, this is not going well. And then I said, but... It's your mother's birthday, and so we had cake for breakfast at about 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning. Told them a few weeks ago, we do not need a dog. We don't have time for a dog. We don't have a place for a dog. We don't have the energy for a dog. We don't have want to buy the food for a dog. But we're getting a dog. And it just the, the, such a small, simple word. They go, oh, my gosh, it's going one way. Just shifted it and went another way completely. Told them a while back, we don't need any cats. We don't want any cats. But... Your mother saw a mouse in the yard and in the house, and some cats showed up on the porch, so we now have cats. We don't need any goats. We don't want any goats. Uh, there's no reason for us to have any goats, but have to do something with the stimulus check, so we got two goats coming on. We have three kids, and, and I feel like we're pretty maxed out. We don't uh, need any more kids, but Hannah is... Proud to announce we'll help babysit uh, any of your kids and help out with anything that you might need. It is an incredibly operative and transitional word in the English language. Got him. It, it can shift things. And in the Bible, when you see a butt show up, and I told the staff, like, I have to work so hard this week not to chase down all the, the dad jokes that are running through my brain right now. But when you see a big butt in the Bible, uh, normally it's a transition where there's like some bad news, and then he takes a hard left turn when the butt shows up uh, to kind of unpack some good news. And where there seems to be just no hope, and it's a, it's a horrible situation with despair, and then there's not a period, but there's a comma and a but. It's because it's turning it, and it's giving good news where there's bad news, hope where there's despair, and that's exactly what's taking place uh, really all throughout the Bible. There's some directions where you read something or you, you hear a story or even in your own life something happens, you think, ah, there's no way this ends well, and then God puts a butt in. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, if you remember the story of Joseph, uh, his story was not going well. His brothers hated him because he was uh, the favorite son, and he was uh, treated with uh, more favoritism than the other kids. And so they uh, sold him into slavery, and they intended bad, evil things for him. And so his story is not going well because they intended some certain things. And in Genesis 50, verse 20, it says, As for you, talking to his brothers, he says, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What they were doing to try to destroy Joseph's life, Joseph says, Listen, I understand you wanted evil, but in the midst of you trying to destroy me, God was actually putting me in a place to save the entire nation. It's a big pivot in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This might be the biggest but in the Bible. Uh, Peter is preaching to those in Jerusalem just a few weeks after the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And he's preaching to the people who had just crucified a guy named Jesus. And he's uh, explaining what just happened. And he says this This Jesus. Delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. If they're listening to the sermon from Peter, they're thinking, uh, this is not good. Paul just said, God showed up just like he said he would and just like he promised he would throughout all the prophets of the Old Testament says, I'm going to come and I'm going to visit, I'm going to send the Messiah, the Christ. And Peter's like, he showed up and you murdered God. And then there's a, a large but. He says, you killed him by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him from the dead. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is talking about our condition as sinners apart and away and before the grace of God comes into our lives. He says, and this is bad news, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Does he say that you're mortally wounded, that you're just barely hanging on? No, Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What do dead people do? Not much. He says you're dead in your trespasses and sins, but... God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, has caused us to be born again. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we'll get there in a few weeks. He gives some bad news, and then this unbelievably powerful word that changes everything. But the wages of sin is death. How many of you have heard this verse? Wages, it's the payment, it's what we earn, what we deserve. He says the wages of sin is death. That's bad news. Praise God, it's not a period, it's a comma. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Bible's full of this good news that's shifted, or bad news that's uh, shifted into good news with this word. And so that's where we pick up today. This is the but that really shifts the narrative and the story in Revelation, or sorry, in Romans. He's been talking about, and and he, he drew us to the point in chapter 3, verse 20, to say that there is no one righteous no, not one. How many are righteous? Not, not rhetorical. How many are righteous? None. Seems like really bad news. He's like, God, uh, he's good, and that means that he is not just good and loving, but he's also good and he's full of justice, and so uh, he's good to have justice for sin. And oh, by the way, no one is righteous. No, not one. Sounds like bad news. And then he shifts it and begins to unpack the good news. So in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, we'll pick it up there, and he says, but, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And this, the word righteousness and the word justification, those are two big theological words that we're going to unpack this morning. This is what Paul's talking about. He's talking about righteousness, which we've already established, means a, a right standing or a, a whole relationship between us and God. It's, it's goodness. It's wholeness. And he's drawn us to the point to realize that we're unrighteous that we're in fact not okay with God. There's a problem between sinner, a sinful people and holy God. And so the process by which that unrighteousness is fixed or the way that unrighteous people become righteous, that process is justification. So he's drawn us up to realize that we are unrighteous and we need to be justified or made righteous. And he gives two options, one that's a dead end and one that is in fact the gospel. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That means unrighteous people can try to work their way towards righteousness or be justified by the law, by what we do, by our behavior, or, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or unrighteous, are made righteous. They're justified by His grace. Everyone say grace, please. Grace. We're justified. We're made right by grace, which means an absolutely unearned, unpaid for free gift. Justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. 
So in Paul's argument and his unpacking of the gospel, he's proved that we're all unrighteous, that our motives, our thoughts, our our language, our tongues, everything has been corrupted by sin. We're unrighteous. We need to be justified. How do we be justified? Option one is to be justified by how we behave or justification by works. Option two is to be justified by what we believe, justification by faith alone. And this idea of justification by faith alone, it's really the spark that set off the Reformation. Uh, the, the biggest revival that the planet Earth has ever seen was uh, what the Catholic Church at the time had been teaching, that you're unrighteous, but you can become righteous or you can get right with God based on your works. And, and when Luther and others began reading the Bible and pouring through the book of Romans and he hits chapter 3, he's like, time out. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if you use your resume of works, then that's never going to be enough. All fall short, that you have to be justified by faith, and not just by faith, but they taught, which I believe with all my heart, justified by faith alone. It's 100% faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, his works, not our works, his resume, not our resume. I love this terminology when he says that for all have fallen short of the glory of God um, because there, there's, a, there's a propensity in us as humans um, if we step into trying to justify ourselves through works is to compare our works to other people. And, and as long as we're doing better than somebody else, then we feel like we're justified before God. And, and you can tell what you use to justify yourself to, to, to make yourself right before God by how you answer this question. This is how it would be posed when I was growing up. If there was a preacher, if you were trying to share the gospel with somebody on the street, you were to open up a tract, and the first question you would ask is, if you were to die today and meet Jesus, and he was to ask you the question, why should I let you into my heaven, then your answer is your justification. Your answer reveals how you feel justified or right to enter into the presence of God. And if your answer has anything to do with your resume, that's justification by works. And I get this all the time. In Midland, Texas, I get this all the time. I got it at a soccer practice last week, was talking to a guy, asked him, like, how do you feel justified to be a Christian? And it was, oh, well, I do this, and I go to this church, and I, I do this thing, and I believe this, and I, you know, just kind of, when you begin the answer with I, then that's the wrong resume, Right? If your answer to the question, what makes you justified before God, begins with, I have done this, I have done that, I have said this, or given this, or served here, then that is works-based justification, which Paul has just said, by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so the only other option is by faith to be justified and for this justification to come from somewhere other than inside of us. Paul says the problem has come from inside of our hearts, so the solution can't come from inside of us. It has to come from somewhere else. So Paul talks about us falling short of the glory of God. A few years ago, we took all three of our kids and drove to Atlanta. That's where Hannah's parents live, and a lot of her family are in Georgia. And I remember for the first time when we got to the uh, Mississippi River, and my children were so excited, and it was so huge, and it was uh, so fun to kind of take in the scenery of the Mississippi River. And I, we had, I think, watched a lot of superhero movies at the time, so Judah thought that he could probably jump over the Mississippi River. And I remember thinking, now, if Dad, if we just stop right now, you let me out, I think, like, uh, I, I could make it across. 
And I'm trying to convince, you know, a six-year-old at the time, like, I don't think, I don't think you can make a cross, but that's a really big jump. And he said, well, I could beat Paisley. I said, okay, buddy. It's, that's different. Jumping further than Paisley is different than making it all the way across the Mississippi River. Okay, people, when they get into works-based salvation and just bring in our resume of like, I think God's going to let me in because I'm better than this person. Okay, being better than the person next to you is much different than being the same as Jesus. You all with me? Comparing yourself to someone else, and listen, you can always find someone else worse than you. Amen? You're like, I don't know. Like, if you're the one person that can't say amen, you're the worst, but you're the one everybody's looking at, right? You can always find someone, if you're going to compare, you can find someone else that gives you this kind of false security that, God, I'm justified. God has to be okay with me, and he has to let me in because I'm not as bad as this person. And Paul is saying, no, comparison is the wrong conversation. He doesn't let people in based on whether we're better than the person to the left or person to the right. He says, all have fallen short. He's like, you might be able to jump six feet into the river. You might be able to jump ten feet in the river. Nobody on their own merit with their own works and their own resume can jump across the river. It's different to be better than someone else. That's a different conversation than being perfect and sinless as God designed us to be. He says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, with, with all of Paul's might, he's trying to shut down this, this, this mentality of, of, of justification by works and this propensity that I believe all of us have to justify ourselves both internally and externally with what we do. He tries to shut it down and shift the conversation to say, you're only going to be justified or made right in the sight of God with the, in a relationship with God by your faith in Christ. And if you noticed in the text there that Paul says faith not just in Jesus, but faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so we, we have to establish that it's not so much the sincerity of your faith that is, is, is strong enough to save you and change you, but it's the object of your faith. Okay, the, or the world says and our culture says that it really doesn't matter what you believe. Uh, There's kind of this idea that all roads lead to heaven and your kind of life is this mountain and, and God and salvation are at the top and uh, Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and Jews and Christians and Catholics and Mormons. They're all uh, on different roads, but they're all going to the same place. And it doesn't matter what your faith is in, just as long as your faith is sincere. Have you all heard this? This is still very, very perme- permeated our, our culture and our thought. That it's like, well, you can't say anything offensive. So everybody just it doesn't matter what you believe as long as your faith is sincere. And that doesn't hold up anywhere else in the world. You know, you can't just say, you know what, I sincerely don't think the government is going to tax me this year. It's like, well, they don't really care what you sincerely believe. It's not the sincerity of your faith, but the object of your faith. How many of you, when you were at youth camps or something, you did the trust fall where they would bring you up in front. This would happen all the time at youth camp. And they would take one person, they would put them on the stage, turn you around backwards, blindfold you, and then bring six of your friends up, or you hope they were your friends, uh, three on each side. And they would tell you just to trust and have faith and fall backwards, and they will catch you. And you're like, I want to see who that is first. Can I peek through the blindfold? Because if one of my siblings is down there, no, uh uh-uh. Because it has nothing to do with the sincerity of your faith. It has everything to do with the object of your faith. And so what what Paul does, 
and this is important in our culture, he doesn't say just to have faith in Jesus. And let me tease this out a minute. Because it's different. He, he adds Jesus Christ. So he's saying that it's not just enough to believe that there was a historical person named Jesus to, to have faith that a man named Jesus lived and he uh, was in Nazareth and he did miracles and he was a good teacher and a good philosopher. He says you need to have faith not just in a historic person named Jesus, but to put your faith in Jesus Christ. How many of you thought, like, I thought that was just his last name, right? Jesus Christ uh, is his name, Jesus, and Christ refers to his office or his title or his function. It's really the same word as Messiah or Savior. So it's very different to trade in your resume of good works and just trusting that a historical person named Jesus lived and walked the earth. Paul's saying to trust and put your faith in Jesus Christ, which means to trust that that historical person, in fact, died on a cross in the place of sinners generically and you specifically, and you believe he has love for you and he will forgive you and he will give grace and and patience and forgiveness and restoration and redemption to you. See, the object of your faith is much more important than the strength of your faith. If you have a lot of faith in Buddha, that is not going to help you. If you have a lot of faith in Mohammed, that is not going to help you. He's dead and gone. If you have a lot of faith in Jesus, he's going to save you. It's the object of your faith that matters much more than just the power of your faith or the, the, the genuineness of your faith. And then he goes on in verse 25, and he talks about something that we've already hit on walking through Romans, but the, the fact that Jesus is both, the, the, he's just and he's the justifier. Let me, let me read it and then we'll unpack it for just a moment. Verse 25, he says, This was to show or righteousness coming through faith in Jesus Christ. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Paul talking about the Old Testament and Old Testament followers of God. How were they saved? Was, was the Old Testament about people being saved by works? And now that Jesus came, it's all about grace. He's saying, no, it has always been about grace and always been about faith, both Old Testament and New Testament. For the divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Paul's saying, listen, in the Old Testament, people still sinned and and God was still just, but he pushed off their sins for those who had faith and believed like Abraham that God was going to provide a, a, a Savior, a Christ, a Messiah. So they had a generic belief in the Messiah, although they didn't know his name. Like, we have a lot more information than they did. We know his name is Jesus. We know he's from Bethlehem. They just knew God promised that he was going to send a Savior to clean up the mess, and they put their faith in that. You're going to see this next, uh, next couple weeks in chapter 4, the Bible lifting up Abraham as the model of our faith, and it says Abraham, Old Testament, was justified, made right by God by his faith. And so his faith in God, it says that God pushed all of his sins forward to the cross and Jesus would deal with them at the cross because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
And what he's talking about is it's, it's timely for us in our culture today because this is what we celebrate as Holy Week. So it begins today as we celebrate Palm Sunday, which uh, is when Jesus uh, walked into Jerusalem for the last time, for the last week of his life and ministry on earth. And they uh, were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, saying, this is it, he's the Savior. And they weren't expecting him to save them from their sins. They were all shouting, expecting him to save them from Caesar and from the Roman Empire. So he enters into Jerusalem, and the same people that are shouting, Hosanna, save us, are the same voices that would be yelling, uh, crucify him just a few days later. And then he begins this Passion Week, and he teaches, and he, and he, and he serves, and he, he gives the communion to us as a gift for the church. And then Good Friday, he would be crucified on a cross, and then Easter, Resurrection Sunday, he would rise from the dead. So... I want to zero in for a moment and talk about the cross because the cross of Jesus is what makes verse 26 possible. It's what makes it possible for God to be both just and the justifier because God being just means God is full of justice. And if you're full of justice, evil must be punished, wrong must be made right, unrighteousness must be dealt with. Again, a little bit of recap, but a few weeks ago we found out, like, you're just not just if something evil happens and you stand by and let, uh, let evil happen. That's not just. So God is just, and yet he's the justifier, meaning that he's going to let sinners go. He's going to forgive uh, us of our sins and wipe our sins away and wash our record clean. But he can't just forget about sin and all of a sudden not care about it, because if he does, he's not just. So this is such a paradoxical thought to think, how can God be both just, verse 26, and the justifier for the one who has faith in Jesus? The Holy Spirit brought this to mind for me this morning when I was just going through some notes and, and reading this section in Romans again, this, this, this time when Jesus, and I believe it was in the, in the last week of his life, uh, he was looking over Jerusalem and he was lamenting and his heart was broken because he had called them in to be saved and they rejected him as the Savior. And he used this uh, metaphor of him as a, a hen or as a mother chicken. He says, as a chicken longs to bring the chicks in and just kind of protect them under his wing, I long to do that for you. And that's the picture that that God gave me this morning. It's a picture of a hen. It's a picture of a a hen chicken, which I don't know if you have ever been around chickens or raised chickens much, uh, but this time of year in the springtime, uh, they're having baby chicks, and those baby chicks are very vulnerable, especially if uh, they're out in the open. And uh, so what a hen would do if, the, if a storm comes, let's say a big hailstorm comes, and uh, the mother hen knows that without some kind, kind of intervention, uh, they're just going to get pummeled and destroyed by the hail. So what she will do is she'll chirp and she'll call, and the chicks will come in and she'll spread her wings out. And as she spreads her wings out, the chicks will get underneath, and she will absorb the storm from them. And if the storm's bad enough, I saw this growing up, if the storm's bad enough, it'll actually kill the mother chicken. And as long as the chicks stayed underneath, they were fine because the the mother was absorbing the storm on their behalf. And if you picture a hen with her wings flared out in protection, absorbing one thing and protecting another, then you get a picture of Jesus on the cross. And that's exactly what the cross was doing. The cross was allowing God to be just. On the cross, it says that Jesus became sin. 
like all of the evil thoughts, all of the evil actions, all of the sin that has been perpetrated and the wickedness that has been exacted, Jesus became that and God hates sin and cannot let sin go unpunished. So at the cross, He is absorbing the full wrath of God to protect those who are underneath Him from it. And so those who come to Jesus in faith for His righteousness are protected from the justice of God. And yet what drips down towards us from the cross is the mercy and the goodness and the, and the forgiveness and the grace and the patience of God. Those who are under the wings are justified. The cross is the only way any of this makes sense. So at the cross, if you, if you think about it and you focus on it, and I hope you do this week. I mean, we hope we do every day as Christians that we think about and meditate on the reality and the historical nature of the cross, but not just that, what that means to us and our walk with Jesus and our lives and where we're at on the planet. But as you think about it this week, two things happen if you spend much time considering and meditating on the cross. One, you find out that Jesus, that God is in fact very, very angry with sin. You can't, you can't, Consider the cross and be like, I just don't think God cares that much about sin. Well, what was that all about? Like the, the fact that Jesus had to die that death for sinners, you, you walk away thinking, uh, He's just, He is just, and, and He will punish sin, and He is a good God, which means He can't let unrighteousness reign. He can't let wickedness survive. He can't let injustice go without bringing justice. You, you'll be convinced of that. You'll be convinced of half of the side of God's character that says He is just. And you'll also be convinced that God is love. Why on earth, why else would Jesus step into our place to absorb the wrath of God unless He loved us? There has never been a picture in the world that has demonstrated the love of God more than the cross of Christ. In fact, that's what Paul's going to say in a few more chapters. I believe it's chapter 5, verses 8. This is that for the love of God is demonstrated towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what Paul's saying, that at the cross, those who put their faith not in their own works and their resume and their righteousness and what we've done, but through faith, we trust that that was actually our cross, and that was my sin that put Jesus on the cross, and he endured that for me, so my faith in Jesus Christ... God has become just and the justifier. Are you all with me? He's just, he's good, and he punishes sin, and yet he's a justifier. He reconciles those who believe in Jesus to him. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, The cross does not represent a compromise between God's wrath and his love. It does not satisfy each one halfway. Rather, it satisfies each fully and in the very same action. The justice and the love of God are manifest to us on the cross, and we celebrate and we thank God for that, especially this week. What, what Paul is doing in this chapter is trying to correct our view of God because every human being has thoughts about God. We've said this before. Every human being is a theologian. We just need our theology to be corrected in, 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 into reality. But we all believe certain things about God. And what Americans believe now about God is not any different than what Paul was dealing with in Rome in the first century. 
Uh, there's, all, there's always about four different ways that people view God. And so Paul is writing in the first century to point out three ways that are dysfunctional, faulty views of God that are still very prevalent in the United States today, and then one accurate view of God. The first way that God is misunderstood is just the idea of, uh, of atheism, that there is no God. And so in chapter 1, Paul unpacks, he's like basically saying, you can't even look at nature with honesty and, and come to the conclusion that there's nobody out there. You can't look at how intricate the human body is and the fact that we're still alive and the earth spinning on its axis. Uh, that It's just like one minor little thing has to go wrong for all of this to go crazy. And you can't honestly look at creation and and, and come, to the real, or come to the conclusion that there is no God. He says, if you do that, you're suppressing a very obvious and a very self-evident truth. So, and about 5% of Americans right now would say that they're atheists, and Paul's saying, just take a look at creation. We have more ability now to do that than they did. Uh, the microscopes that go so small and the telescopes that's so big, and what we're finding out is that both of them seem to go on e eternally almost. We can't get to the end of how big things are that are big, and we can't get to the end of how small the intricate details are. So you look at all this, like you would never come to the conclusion like, I guess a big explosion did all this. All right, if you walk into your garage and you're like, oh my gosh, for Easter my wife got me a Ferrari or a Corvette, or if you're me, a Jeep Scrambler, whatever your hope and dream was, like, you walk in like, oh my gosh, an explosion must have happened in the garage. Like, if you do that, you're like, I think you're kind of suppressing the truth, right? Like, just looking at creation, you may not know his name, but you would logically come to the realization that somebody big, somebody powerful, somebody detail-oriented and creative is on the other side of this. So he, he, he kind of deals with this idea of atheism. He says it's just an illogical conclusion to come to, if you're honest. Number two, this idea of a benevolent God. Solely benevolent, this is what Paul was dealing with, and this is what we're dealing with. That means that God is he's, he's, he's only loving. He can't do anything uh, harsh. He can't judge. He, 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 we've unpacked this multiple times already in Romans. But this idea that, I don't know, if God's loving, he can't send anybody to hell. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you've thought that yourself. This is the idea that God is only benevolent. He's kind of a Mr. Rogers up in the cosmos, and he's happy, and he can't ever be angry. and has to give you what you want. He can't ever punish anything, can't ever judge anything. And Paul deals directly with this idea. He says you actually cannot be good unless you have a side that's angry, unless you deal with and are angry with injustice and rape and murder and, and selfishness and all the sin, if God doesn't care about those things, then he's not a good God. The idea of this benevolent God that can't get angry falls apart very quickly. And then the third way that people tend, both in Paul's day and in our day, is the opposite of that, that God is not loving, he's not kind, he's just angry, he's just judgmental, he just wants to, kind of like a father that can't be pleased sometimes, just want to exist to uh, watch the kids and wait till they mess up so that he can kick them back in line. Uh, many people, uh, again, both in Paul's day and about 24% of Americans uh, would, would fall uh, on this belief, and I think a lot of them had, had a father that was like that had a father that was not kind, not loving, angry, just wanted to knock them back in line, and so they've projected that onto God. And Paul deals with that as well. He's like, listen, then Jesus wouldn't step into the cross out of love to endure God's wrath for you if he didn't love you. And so Paul gives us the fourth option, which is a biblical understanding of the true God, that God does exist, and he is a creator, and he creates good things and intricate things and beautiful things. And God is loving, 
And he is kind and he is gracious and he will justify sinners, but he is also wrathful and angry and and righteous and can rightfully judge sinners. So he is both just and the justifier. And that's Paul saying, listen, our, our theology of who God is needs to be informed by the word of God more than by our own thoughts, our own experience, our own parents, or our own culture. He's saying God is both just and the justifier. And for those who come to him for righteousness by faith in Christ, come under the banner of the cross, and he absorbs the, 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 the justice of God so that God is still just. He was, it was poured out on Jesus, and yet he justifies us by faith in Christ. What happens to those who refuse to believe? What happens to those who refuse to put their faith in Jesus? They're not underneath the covering of Christ. They're just simply exposed in unrighteousness to a righteous God. It's like being out in the middle as a chick in a hailstorm. Can't simply survive it. That's the picture of what he's trying to share with us. And so he keeps going to talk about if that's who God is and the right response is to confess our sins, to put our faith not in the fact that we're good people, but he's a good person, not our resume, but his by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that he says, well, what about boasting? Because boasting is really at the root of works righteousness. It's this mentality that all of us humans have that we want to take credit for something. And we want to boast about uh, something, about who we are and what we've done. And Sorry, back to Romans chapter 3. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? If we're justified and has nothing to do with what you've done and only with Jesus, he's like, what do we have to boast about? It's like, what happens to our boasting? Good question. It's excluded. He's like, you don't get to boast. If you're saved by Jesus and by faith in Him, He says, you don't get to boast anymore. And that's the point. Maybe you've considered and you've wondered, why did Jesus orchestrate the gospel in, such, in, in the way that He did? Why did He make it so that every human being, if they're going to be saved and receive the grace, the free gift of God, why do they have to go through Jesus? It's all about boasting. Because he wants us to boast in Jesus, not in ourselves. So if we say, what will you say if you die and you meet Jesus? And he says, why will I let you into heaven? And you start talking about things you've done. He's like, no, 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 no. This place ain't for you. This place is for people that boast in Jesus. What about our boasting? He says, it's excluded. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says this, for by grace you have been saved, meaning a free, absolutely unearned free gift. By grace, you have been saved. How? Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Heaven is a place that's designed for people that want to boast about Jesus. So if you boast in yourself... You just need to know that that, that that place is not for you. If your resume is what you show up to justify your entrance, he's like, no, you, you, fall, you fall short. This is about boasting in Jesus. So two things that the gospel of grace alone, faith alone, through Christ alone does. One, it causes us to stop boasting about ourselves and brings up like a deep humility. And then second, it causes us to boast in Jesus. So maybe you need to hear one or, or both of those. Maybe you need to hear that if, 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 if your resume is what you're banking on to make you right with God, then you need to tear that up, throw it away, just like Paul did. He says, listen, 
uh, I believe it's uh, Philippians chapter 3. It says, if anyone can boast about their resume, it's me. It says, circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law. I'm a Pharisee concerning righteousness that comes through the law. Blameless. He's like, if you want to get into a boasting match, I will win. And at the end of that, he's like, I consider it rubbish, which if you look in the Greek in Philippians 3 at that word rubbish, it's a pretty strong word. Some might consider a cuss word. I consider it dung, worse than that. I, I'm trading my resume in that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. He's like, if you want to get into a boasting match, I will win, but I throw it all away, and my goal in life is to be found in Jesus, having his righteousness imputed or given to me by, by, by grace through faith. So maybe you need to boast less and put your faith in Jesus, or maybe you need to boast more in Jesus. Maybe you have a tendency to shy away when people ask you about your life or your beliefs or, or, or share their problems, that you have a, an opportunity to talk about Jesus and to boast about him, but you have a tendency to just remain quiet and remain silent and be timid and not boast in Jesus. This is the two ways I want to encourage us and challenge us is to not boast in ourselves, but definitely boast in Christ. So I want to bring this down to this point where Paul talks a lot about grace. He says that if you're saved, it's not because we've, we've earned it, but because we have been given it by grace, free gifts. So the question is, who then receives grace? If we're all sinners and we're all unrighteous, out of that, who gets grace? The book of James, which is Jesus' little brother, who was not convinced, I don't, it doesn't seem like in the scriptures that his brother was actually the son of God until the resurrection, and then even his own brother was convinced and gave his life pushing the movement of his, 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 his deified brother, Jesus Christ, uh, gave his life to perpetuate this truth. That's James. Uh, James says this, talking about who gets grace in James chapter 4, verse 6. He says, but he, God, gives grace Therefore, it says, and then he quotes the Bible, he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If all of humanity is in one category of, of sinner, unrighteous, who gets the grace? He says, out of this category, there's two responses when you're really brought front and center to the gospel and the reality is that we, 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 we're broken and we need a Savior and we can't save ourselves. And we're brought right, right to the precipice of that, that we respond in one of two ways, either pride, which is like, no, I'm going to stick with my resume. I'm going to stick with what I've done. I don't think I'm that bad of a person. I think I've got some things that I've done pretty well. I've avoided the big sins. I'm going to stick with my resume, and I don't need Jesus. Jesus' little brother, James, says God opposes the proud, and they're left outside the wing, and they get the storm, and they're left to deal with the wrath and the holiness of God on their own. But who gets saved? Who gets grace? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to what? To who? To the humble and this is what I was considering this week. Like, it sounds so easy. Like, it sounds too easy. Like, I don't know, if I've, if I've wronged God and offended God and sinned against God, all I have to do is believe? Doesn't that sound just almost too easy and almost too simple? And yet, why does not every human being respond to this? 
Why isn't everybody a Christian if that's all you have to do? Because in one sense, it's so easy, so simple. Don't have to do anything. Don't have to change anything. All you have to do is believe. And yet it's, it's too simple because in order to do that, we have to deal with our pride. <laughs> we have to have a measure of humility, and that's a, a tough thing. This, this will be the challenge for many West Texans. When you're truly exposed to the gospel, you have to decide whether you actually need a Savior. I don't know if you know this, but we're not known for asking for help. And so what will cause many people to be in hell forever is their pride. Although it's so easy to respond to the gospel, they just can't simply get over their own pride that they cannot save themselves, that they cannot change themselves. He opposes the proud, and He gives grace to the humble. And so this is the gospel, that God sent Jesus His Beloved and only Son, God wrapped in flesh, born in a manger, raised in Jerusalem, lived His life, taught perfect, absolutely sinless, and then would be drugged down into Jerusalem, stripped down naked, beaten half to death, put on a cross, shameful, naked, eye level between two sinners, and identified as the most horrific of all criminals because He was becoming sin for you and I so that we might... In, in, receive the grace of God for those who believe, for those who move their faith from themselves and put their faith in Jesus Christ as a Savior. He gives grace to the humble. So it's simple, and yet what makes it difficult is we have to deal with our own pride. You have to admit that you need a Savior and that His name is Jesus. We're going to take communion together in just a few moments. And in communion, we're, I mean, we're doing one of the most powerful things imaginable. We're, we're reflecting on not just the, the power and the truth behind the crucifixion of Jesus. We're doing it in a very personal way where we, we realize that that wasn't just Jesus dying for the sins of the world. That was Jesus dying for my sins and for your sins and to rescue us and to give us grace. And so I want to uh, pray for a few moments. And as, as, as we open this up, I want to invite you to bow your head and to close your eyes and even give you a moment just right there where you're at in the silence of your own chair to pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would, would speak to you and would prepare you. Uh, to take communion and to remember Christ and what that means for us in the past and what that means for us in the future. Jesus, we love you. God, we recognize, especially this week, that you did the unthinkable. God, that for all of eternity past, you had been prepared for a cross. God, even Psalm chapter 22 talks about what you would endure on the cross before the Persians even invented crucifixion. You knew that was coming. That's where the, the justice and the justification of Christ, that's where it met. And so, Father, I, I pray for this 
this message, God, just for the truth of Romans chapter 3 to find its way into our hearts, God, to change and to fix and to align what we believe about who you are. God, I pray that our theology and our belief about you is, uh, is accurate and it's true and it's not tainted by the culture we live in or the things inside our own hearts and minds. God, would you uh, change us and align us to your will and align us to your son and align us to your word? Father, for those of us who have put our faith in you, God, I pray that you would just cause worship and gratitude and thanksgiving to well up from the deepest parts of our hearts and to spill out into every, every aspect of our lives. God, the fact that you loved us enough to reach out and to die for us and to rescue us and God, to give grace, Father, we recognize that you're a good God. And Father, I pray for anyone that has been trusting in their works and their resume, God, that you would bring them to a place that they would set that aside and they would truly put their faith in you, and that your works are better than our works, that what you have done is better than what we can do. And God, as we take communion together as a church family, I pray that your spirit would speak to each one of us, that you would challenge us where we need challenge, that you would convict where we need conviction, that you would encourage where we need encouragement. And Father, that you would glorify your son through our time together. Lord Jesus, we love you. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. We would love for you to join us at one of our in-person services as well. For more information or to support our ministry, please visit RedeemerMidland.org. 